Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to turn back to the currency market since, since uh, frankly, that's where a lot of the action has been, and that seems to be driving a lot of flows around the world. I want to bring in Doug Borthwick, who is Managing Director and Head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. Um, I want to start with China. I know the dollar has been the big story because of how strong it has gotten, but China seems to be one of the big wild cards of 2017. How quickly will it allow the UN to depreciate? Um, Doug, what's your forecast for next year and the UN? Well, I think that China's been the whipping boy this year, but uh, maybe not necessarily. It, maybe it shouldn't have been. I think that you know, certainly this year, dollar China's moved up by 7%. So China, in effect, has divided by 7%. But somewhere like you know, Switzerland's divided by 3%, and no one's pointing fingers there. Over the last five years, the yen has depreciated by 49%, and China only 9%. And yet China is, is, is pointed to, and people say, you know, that this is a currency that's being allowed to, to weaken considerably, whereas the Japanese are being given the OK by G20 to allow their currency to weaken by 49%. There seems to be sort of a, a double standard when it comes down to what currencies are doing around the world. And now dollar China trades nowadays based off of where the dollar is trading in general, because China obviously trades off of a basket. So if you see a stronger dollar globally and the dollar strengthens versus the euro and the dollar strengthens versus the yen, you'd expect it to strengthen considerably against China. Now, our view certainly is that the dollar going forward into the next year will probably be plateauing around the levels we're seeing here as the excitement and frothiness over the, uh, the, the new administration sort of starts to turn over with the reality of what happens in Washington. And we expect to see the dollar to start to weaken versus the yen and also versus the euro. If that is to happen, then you'll see the dollar start to weaken against China, and you'll see a sort of a move back. There's one thing that we are concerned about, and that is extreme dollar strength is negative for the world in a number of different ways. One extreme dollar strength will probably not help um, President-elect Trump when it comes down to his policies of exporting more U.S. goods and employing more U.S. You know, uh, uh, workers. Another thing the strong dollar does in Asia specifically is it means that you know the dollar rises versus Korea, versus Taiwan, versus Thailand, Indonesia. All emerging markets currencies start to weaken considerably. When that happens, they have trouble in paying back their U.S. dollar-denominated debt. And when that happens, you get another emerging markets crisis. So we believe strongly that, that while a strong dollar may have been in the U.S. interest, in terms of making America great again, a weaker dollar may actually be more important. Uh, Doug Borthwick, I just want to push back a little bit on your sort of description of China as a whipping boy for currency manipulation, bringing in Japan and Switzerland. I mean, the Chinese have the highest trade surplus with the United States, the Netherlands, India, Vietnam, United Kingdom, Singapore. There's no uh, there's no Switzerland on that list. I mean, the reason isn't it political? I mean, you're a currency trader. A lot of this has to do with just plain politics. I think plain politics is, is, is a huge part of all of this. Now, one thing we have seen over the last five years in terms of where's the sphere of influence moving, it's certainly moving away from the U.S. and towards China, especially on a trade basis. 
I'd say five years ago, or well, let's say 10 years ago, the U.S. was the number one or number two trading partner pretty much for every country around the world, and China's now taken that spot. And that's something that's, I think, uh, of considerable interest, not just when it comes down to currencies, but also when it comes down to matters at the U.N., uh, matters when it comes down to talking about trade, in that China now has much bigger say at the table because you normally vote with your largest trading partner and not necessarily with uh, you know, the, the guy sitting next to you. And, yeah, but this and has lately, been going China on since coming. 2013. I mean, this has been going on since, since 2013, right? China was the, is the largest trading nation in the world as of then. We're talking about like almost $2 trillion, more than $2 trillion worth of stuff, and that doesn't even include foreign investments. That's right. Well, you know, I guess I'm trying to think about it from a trader's perspective. I mean, the political sphere right now is is pretty foggy. It's hard to get a clear sense of what exactly is going to happen in the next three months, let alone year. Um, but it, certainly we are getting a clear sense from the Federal Reserve that they are going to hike rates uh, at a faster pace than people have been expecting back in September. Uh, do you think that if the Fed does go through with three rate hikes next year, that will lead the dollar uh, higher than sort of this level that we're at right now? I think the level that we're at right now is looking at that information of the three rate hikes and is pondering it. I think that three rate hikes would be rather aggressive given that we've had two rate hikes in the last two years. So saying that we'll have three next year seems rather bullish. But then again, the Fed's always pushed this sort of very bullish game of the U.S. economy and then ended up sort of uh, you know, changing their opinion as, as time goes on. I think that what's, what's really interesting is you've seen the, the U.S. 10-year move from this what, 140 in mid-2016 up to, what, 255 today? That's a huge move in, in, in 10 years. And I think that you know, there's a lot of interest rate rises that are maybe priced into this, this curve. But if the U.S. wants to do a number of things, that is, issue debt so they can get into infrastructure spending, they'd probably rather a lower interest rate than a higher interest rate. And also, if the Fed was to be as aggressive as people are expecting, or the Fed has certainly said, then I think you would see a stronger dollar at least it's stable around these levels. But I think that there's one thing we've seen in the U.S. economy, and that is that it tends to disappoint relative to bad expectations. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Douglas Borthwick is Managing Director, Head of FX at Chapter Lane and Company. Well, there might not be that much going on uh, in in sort of the corporate news world, but there is uh, quite a bit going on in the legal world. I'm looking uh, in this instance at the lawsuit, the charge of uh, the federal prosecutors, uh, basically the co-founder of the bankrupt hedge fund Platinum Partners uh, was charged with what federal prosecutors said was a $1 billion fraud resembling a Ponzi scheme. I want to bring in Zeke Fox, a Bloomberg News reporter, uh, to elaborate on what exactly this case is all about. Zeke? Hi, Lisa. Um, Yes, so Platinum Partners is a hedge fund that manages, or at least claims to manage, more than a billion dollars. And up until uh, last year, it looked like it was one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. It had reported 17% gains on average since 2003 with no down years and only actually a few down months. Um, now, it all started to come unraveled this summer when one of its managers was arrested for allegedly bribing a union official to invest. And people started to think, if this fund is so good, why do they have to bribe people to invest in it? And now, apparently, we have the answer. Uh, the other 
managers of the fund got arrested uh, or charged today by a grand jury, and prosecutors are saying that the fund wasn't really doing as well as it claimed. Well, how much money was potentially lost as a result of this uh, Ponzi-like scheme, that, or at least that's how it's described by prosecutors? So in investors, you know, they're still getting uh, their statements saying that they have, you know, a total of $1.4 billion in there. Now, after the first arrest this summer, the hedge fund closed, said it was uh, entered bankruptcy protection, and said it was going to liquidate its position slowly and distribute the money to investors. So just because it's bankrupt doesn't mean it went to zero, um, but we really have no idea what investors will get back. And this arrest is certainly uh, today is certainly not a good sign. Zeke, aren't there uh, controls in place to prevent uh, funds from uh, misrepresenting the information that they give out about their performance as well as the amount of money that they manage? Yes. So the way they were able to perhaps slip through the cracks is that their fund, unlike most funds, was made up of very illiquid, hard-to-value investments, you know, like oil wells or just things that weren't traded. So they would get uh, oil wells in California, I believe, is is the specific instance, correct? Yes. So they had one of their biggest assets was the string of oil wells in California. Uh, They were claiming it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, And I actually went and investigated this earlier this year and found that they basically never uh, produced any oil. Um, But because this is a private company, it's not something that the SEC is really checking out. Um, And the auditors, when they audit the books, are sort of relying on all these third-party reports that say, oh, the oil well has a lot of potential or things like that. So it's just a little harder to uh, see that they weren't getting the returns that that they claimed. And I'm sure they're going to try and argue that these things really are valuable and that the prosecutors are wrong, that that they are worthless and that the fund is a fraud. Who are, who are some of the clients or the types of clients uh, that could be on the hook for some potential losses if these things, if the assets are not as valuable as the uh, hedge fund managers say? Well, the first is the uh, New York City Prison Guards Union. That's the pension fund that its manager allegedly took a bribe to put tens of millions of dollars into this hedge fund. Norman Seabrook, um, correct? Norman Seabrook, that's right. Um, and he was uh, arrested as well. Most of the other investors are wealthy individuals. The managers of the fund were very well known among the New York's Orthodox Jewish community. And many of the investors are people they knew from their charity work or just other prominent Orthodox Jews. They didn't attract a lot of investment from uh, other big pension funds. I think because uh, the pension fund consultants I showed it to said that there were already so many red flags with this fund that it would be hard to get a big institution to invest. What kinds of red flags? I mean, other than the fact that uh, that they invested in only highly illiquid assets that were hard to check out. It's hard to know where to start. Um, <laughs> I, I first, uh, I've been investigating these guys for a few years. They invest in all sorts of random things, and often the things go poorly, um, even though they're always saying they make money. Um, an example is, this is a few years ago, they invested in this sort of, they found this, what they thought was a loophole in variable annuity contracts. They essentially got hospice patients to sign up for variable annuities using the hedge fund's money. And it was the idea was that 
there was like a sign-up bonus, and if the patients died quickly, they could earn the sign-up bonus uh, for the hedge fund. They ended up getting in trouble with the SEC for this. Um, it was not a loophole, as they thought. So there's like a million little stories like this, and I think some people thought, the question is, if they're always trying to operating in these gray areas, are they really going to be honest with their own investors, too? Right. Zeke Fox, I remember that story. It was a great story. Zeke Fox, Bloomberg News, thank you so much for joining us. All right, let's solve the issue of the U.S. dollar and its strength. I want to bring in Joel Stern. He is the chairman and the chief executive of Stern Value Management. Joel Stern, always a pleasure. Give us your take on the strength of the U.S. dollar. What's causing it, and what do you believe will happen next? The U.S. dollar is strong because everybody is going to be doing lots more business in U.S. dollars from around the world. People are expecting much higher rates of return to be earned on capital employed. That's very important. Uh, There are two reasons for that. Number one is getting rid of onerous regulations. What that does is it not only improves the existing returns, but it reduces the risk about making future investment as well. And the second has to do with the uh, uh, cutting of the marginal statutory tax rate from, say, near 40% if you include city and state. Our trading partners in Europe alone, 23%. If you take about 27, 28 of our major trading partners, it actually averages closer to 22%. In other words, if why would you not take your business overseas if you could have a lower tax rate by fully half? It just doesn't make any – in other words, what I'm saying to you is I don't think that Donald Trump has to berate companies for doing something that is simply the result of normal gravitational forces in the economy – People are going overseas for a good reason. If he takes care of these two things, I believe it will be only a trickle leaving the country. And I believe lots of what left the country will actually start to come back because there were reasons why companies wanted to do business in the United States in the first place. Right. Well, we're, taking, we're taking away the impediments. That's what it comes down to. So, Joel, um, based on what you're saying, the dollar, the dollar rally, how much of what you're talking about, which is tax reform and making uh, the tax policies in the U.S. more business friendly for uh, companies that have already taken their business overseas to bring them back, how much of that bringing back of business and tax reform gotten priced into the dollar uh, versus how much has the dollar risen on the expectation that this will happen, uh, but could get dampened if it doesn't happen fast enough? Well, fast enough is not uh, somewhere, forgive me. There's a legislative process here. You can't just, a president, although a a recent current president, decided through executive order to do various things. But Donald Trump has said he doesn't like that idea. He wants to reduce the executive power and turn much of that back to the legislature. So we need to simply get this thing done and done quickly. What will happen is that the president will give a State of the Union address uh, after his inauguration, and that will tell us a great deal because by that time uh, he will be able to get some notion as to uh, whether or not the Republican leadership in the, in the House is going to go along with him. This is the Ways and Means Committee. This is not the United States Senate. He has to deal with the Congress. So having a strong liaison with the Congress will tell us a great deal about that. The liaison to the Congress, that's what we ought to get onto the news programs on Sunday. You get the liaison on there, we'll learn a lot, a lot more. But the important thing now 
is that there is a complete change in attitude. Keep in mind that when Hillary Clinton was running for president, whether it was caused by Sanders or not, she said, I'm going to increase regulations. I'm going to increase taxation. Can you believe that? Now, what, uh, by the way, the test is going to be simple. My teacher, Milton Friedman, used to say, it would be nice if monetary policy was expensive and Keynesian policy tight, or the reverse, so we could test the two theories. We're going to be able to test the political theory on, on, on this whole subject by whether or not, and of course it's happening already. The stock market takes the present value of the future performance. And why the market is so strong? The markets are believing that there's going to be a very substantial improvement in operating performance of companies. And what I'm saying is, even if it doesn't happen in the current year, that is the year 2017, if it doesn't happen, it won't matter because it's whether it happens in 18 and 19 and 20 and so forth, it's the present value of that that is already in the price of the shares. Let me just mention, Joel Stern, uh, some news from Bloomberg that the president-elect Donald Trump is considering nominating ex-U.S. attorney Deborah Wong Yang to run the Securities and Exchange Commission. She would be the second uh, consecutive former federal prosecutor to lead uh, this uh, regulatory body. Uh, Joel, Joel Stern, uh, interest rates, rising interest rates and inflation or expectations of inflation? Give us your thoughts. Tim, it's a great question. Everybody's been talking about the rise in interest rates as being caused by an increase in inflationary expectations. In my view, that is absolutely false. And the evidence is the decline in the gold price. The gold price is a function of the reciprocal, it's, it's, it's a function of the real U.S. interest rate on government securities. What's happened is that the increase in interest rates, real interest rates, has caused the gold price to go down. If interest rates went up and the gold price went up at the same time, then I would say, uh-oh, here comes inflation. But if interest rates rise because of a rise in what are called real interest rates, and what's the reason for that? because the rates of return on capital in the United States are going to be much, much higher than they are now. And the signal to the rest of the world is the real interest rate. I would prefer that real interest rates would be 5%, because then it would be saying, wow, we're going to go back to the time when the average industrial corporation in America earned a return of between 12 and 15% on its capital employed. I would like to see that again. If that happens, we'll see the Dow Jones Industrial Average probably up around 23 to 25,000. Let me just mention that the price of gold has dropped about 15% since the right. November election. That's right. You know, as you talk, Joel, I'm thinking to myself, usually when people talk about higher uh, real rates, it might be helpful for the economy once we get there. But the but the path there is pretty rocky. I mean, what do you think? Uh, what's your outlook for for bonds in the first half of next year? I think investors in bonds, Lisa, are going to be in big trouble. Uh, in fact, you know, the PIMCOs of the world have been moving to shorter and shorter maturities because they don't want to get whacked on those long-term bond rates changing. If long-term interest rates go up as they have, incidentally, the 30-year uh, bond right now is around 315. Do you know that when uh, Trump was ele- uh, elected uh, at the beginning of November, I think that rate was somewhere around uh, 235 to 240. And so this is a huge increase, and that's why the gold price has come very sharply down. But again, the gold price coming down means that it's a rise in real interest rates and not inflationary expectations. Can I just make one other comment? Sure. I was listening to you before. I found your discussion fascinating about the real estate prices in Washington. Keep in mind, one of the major reasons why the, the prices go up is because the people who were in office don't need 
they don't leave. That's fair. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Joel Stern, chairman and CEO of Stern Value Management, talking about why the increase in rates is not necessarily because of inflation and why the dollar could get stronger ahead. is preparing for a tax battle, particularly one in the European Union. It has officially uh, appealed the European Union's August decision uh, to claw back $13.6 billion in unpaid taxes from the iPhone maker over taxes that they did not have to pay in Ireland. I want to bring in somebody who can speak much better about this than I can. Matt Larson, litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Matt, can you just sort of give us an overview of what this case really is about? Yeah, certainly. So uh, back in 2013, the European Commission requested Ireland uh, submit how taxes were calculated on a number of companies that either claimed residents or non-taxable residents in Ireland. Ireland has a very low uh, corporate tax rate, and uh, a lot of multinational corporations make use of the favorable tax laws in Ireland to get uh, pretty good deals on how the company transfers things to various subsidiaries and reduces their overall tax liability. Um, among those companies was Ireland. And in March of 2014, the European Commission uh, instituted a formal investigation of Ireland's tax arrangements with Apple. Uh, that took a couple years, and we'll fast forward to 2016, when the European Commission basically found that Ireland had undercollected uh, I'm sorry, 13 billion euros. Uh, of taxes, so these are uh, 13 billion on essentially uh, internal revenues, transfer prices, uh, intellectual property, licensing revenue uh, that went untaxed. Uh, kind of that uh, that Apple was was transferring between subsidiaries in Ireland. Right. So, is it just this 13.6 billion dollars or 13 euros, 13 billion euros that's on the line here, or does this appeal sort of set a precedent for an even larger amount of money or a larger amount of back taxes that Apple would potentially have to pay? Yeah. So the investigation, the investigation that's going on now, just looks at these 13.6. But there's there's a bigger story here. There's there's a lot more dollars at stake in terms of how um, how the Irish Revenue Service is going to revisit its taxation, how the European Commission is cracking down on these deals. So there's potentially a much larger universe of revenue, uh, and not just for Apple, but for other tech companies in Ireland as well. I, I mentioned at the onset that in 2013. Um, the European Commission was looking into a number of different companies. Uh, they just published a, a public version of the opinion in the Apple decision, um, and they used nine comps. They didn't list who the companies were, but they took a look at practices across nine different companies and um, alluded to the fact that there wasn't a uniform way that taxes were uh, calculated in any one of those scenarios. So it signals that there could be a much bigger issue of of taxation in Ireland that's going to be revisited. Um, and obviously, Apple's future tax liability is in question here, depending on what happens with the uh, with the current litigation. Matt, how about the European Union investigate the tax policies of other European Union countries? Because I was looking at the Ir uh, the Irish tax uh, uh, world, corporate tax. Let's just do the comparison, right? Corporate tax rate in the United States 
rates 35 percent. Ireland's taxation rate for corporations 12.5 percent, but they only charge six and a quarter percent for revenue that's tied to a company's patent or intellectual property. And dig this. Even if you lose money as a startup, there's a 25% tax credit, which is applied against the corporate tax rate of 12.5%. And they get like more than 10% of the total con- the country's revenue comes from taxes. Apple's got $238 billion in cash. This is a check. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's a, it's a fraction of their... Um, you know, a fraction of their liability. If you if you look at the uh, the EPS estimates, even if you know this is going to be litigated for a while, it's going to take a couple years to play out. But um, it's really just kind of a marginal difference on um, on Apple's balance sheet. Uh, yeah, the stock so. is up. The stock the stock is up a buck and a quarter right now. It's one hundred and seventeen twenty four. Yeah, you know, it's no funny. one's it's getting a, it, phased by this. Yeah, it's it's a minor dent. It's some headline risk. It's negative news for the company. Obviously, you don't want to be involved in any proceeding that seems to headline risk that, for Ireland, maybe. Yeah, yeah. There, you know, it was funny. The the decision was supposed to be released before elections in Ireland, and some speculated that they mm. pushed the decision back so that they didn't upset Irish voters and Imagine potentially influence politics, the influencing business and taxes. Matt Larson, litigation analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence giving us some details about Ireland and taxes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.